Well, I'm deeply humbled to be here with you and uh, so glad to be here in Phoenix and uh, so glad to be here in Phoenix today. It's not by accident we're here together. It is, uh, it is testing some of my theories. Uh, my friend Mark uh, knows this uh, perhaps better than anyone because I've been talking this way for a very long time. At a certain point in life, a man reaches a certain age where he needs to wear as many clothes as possible. <laughs> things, uh, things are not moving in our direction. We need to wear as many clothes as possible. That works for me in most parts of the world. It's a stretch for me here. <laughs> and uh, I know, I know it's a dry heat. I've heard that before. Uh, it's, uh, it's a heat. I grew up in Florida. That's a wet heat. Uh, but nobody ever told me I needed to use a potholder to open my car door in Florida. That's, uh, that, that's only out here. <clears throat> I flew in to preach at a conference in Palm Springs a few years ago in July. Yes, I know. And uh, landed and uh, they gave me a potholder at the Hertz counter. And I couldn't help it. I simply turned to him and I said, who thought it was a good idea to put a town here? <laughs> but there's a whole country. This uh, is the way it is. And, and this was, the, the, the name comes from Arid Zone. Uh, I get that. But then I was invited back out here to Phoenix to speak in January. I get it. I get it. I get it entirely. Uh, I also understand that timing is everything. And uh, thus, I'll leave it to you to make your own inferences concerning the wisdom of Southern Baptists deciding to meet in June. Uh, this, is, uh, this is why we're doing it. But you invited us and we're here. And I'm just so excited to see what the Lord's doing in this place. I mean, this is one of the greatest metropolitan areas in all the United States. It's just amazing to see how the Lord is, is out of nowhere. This is what's exciting to me. You come here, you're looking at a city that didn't exist 200 years ago. And, and now you look at what it is becoming. And I'm so thankful for evangelical ministries that are here. And I'm so thankful for you and honored to be here with you and honored to be here in Phoenix uh, in the heat with you. Now that it did lead to certain trouble in my life over the last week because the president of the Southern Baptist Convention put out an advisory that we should consider dressing in business casual. Now for Anyone below a certain age in the SBC, that was a completely irrelevant. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, business casual would be a step up. Uh, and so I kind of see that as moral exp expectation and exhortation for a, a bunch of the young guys. But for the older people, it's going to be tough because we have a uniform in Southern Baptist life. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, I'm a big proponent of the uniform for the previous theory that I mentioned about maximizing the clothes when you reach a certain age. So I actually put out a tweet. I, I tweeted the president's statement and I just said, this is how a, a, a denomination goes liberal. <laughs> and I just said, don't do it, Southern Baptists. And, and, and then I went to dinner and uh, didn't think about it a whole lot. And, uh, and then I checked my Twitter feed, which I shouldn't have done, but I looked at it. And the frightening thing was how many people thought I meant it seriously. 
and, uh, and, and were trying to get back to me and saying, this is how fundamentalism starts. You take something that's a biblical, non-essential, and, and you raise it to, uh, to being an absolute mandate. And, uh, and, and so, you know, brother, I'm brokenhearted over this. I go to a church that doesn't, and uh, a friend of mine, James Merritt, pastor in uh, Georgia, former president of the SBC, uh, he, he tweeted me back, quoting John McEnroe, you can't be serious. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew it's a, it's a line we've thrown back several times. So I just wrote back at him and I said, I remember when you were president of the SBC, you wore suits and ties and then you went all Laodicea on me. And, uh, and I just said, you know, the wound is deep, brother. Well, I should have learned my lesson because within two hours, prayer groups were sprouting up across the United States. And I had to tweet back to James that said, James, they're taking us seriously and praying for us. And then I just put we period, our period, kidding period. He tweeted me back, we period, our period, kidding period. Love you, brother. People didn't believe us. <laughs> so here I am, I'm making a statement. I'm not wearing a tie, let the record show. This is, this is, this is how it goes. Yeah, the, uh, the fall of civilization starts right here. But brothers and sisters are going no further. This is it. I am so honored to get to speak to you about discipleship and the culture. And even before speaking to that issue at all, I want us to read a text of Scripture, actually an entire chapter of Scripture. Speaking of Twitter, someone tweeted yesterday, is he going to read again an entire chapter of Scripture? The answer is yes. And it is because I want us to hear this entire chapter together, because it actually is going to answer a lot of the questions before we begin, and that's the point. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, chapter 6. We read together. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, 
and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised." When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commended you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is God's word. So let's ask the obvious question. Why are we talking about discipleship and the culture? Why are we talking about the culture at all? Well, this is not the kind of topic that you might expect to find in an evangelical conference of believers such as are gathered here in most decades past. This, this reflects the newness and perhaps even the urgency of asking a question we really hadn't asked before. And it leads to an obvious conclusion. Christians generally talk about the culture when we have to. That's, that's the bottom line. Uh, it comes as something of a second nature to us to take the culture for granted until we can't any longer. When we understand that the culture presents a particular challenge to us, then we are newly awakened and newly urgent to have to do some thinking about it as convictional Christians. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should not have been thinking about the culture. And indeed, thankfully, there are some Christians who have been throughout all the ages and even in recent decades thinking very deeply, carefully, and often very biblically about the culture. But it is to say that Christians tend to think about those things most urgently that present themselves, well, most frighteningly to us. And, and, and also, again, the, the word of urgency just is unavoidable here. There, there are issues that now face every single Christian, every single Christian disciple, every single Christian family, every single congregation, the, the issues that once were confronted by the few are now confronted by not only the many, but just about everyone. And this, this leads us to perhaps even a certain kind of cultural panic. And, uh, and you can see this panic. It comes in successive waves. And uh, what makes the situation different now is that, uh, is that the panic is generalized. It's not just an issue. 
many American Christians, for example, that have been at ease in Zion, so to speak, are at ease no more. And, and there's a certain kind of panic that we now live in a context in which biblical convictional Christianity is considered by our neighbors increasingly not merely odd, but dangerous. We are seen as dangerous people. And, and, and furthermore, we in return see the culture as increasingly dangerous. Uh, there's a reason why we witness the phenomenon of helicopter parents. Um, there are problems with helicopter parenting, but at least one of the reasons why amongst Christians something like this has become far more common is, is because we recognize the toxicity of so much of what is, is confronted by people even now very young in terms of cultural products and the experiences of culture. And, and it used to be that Christians knew, well, we can just isolate certain parts of the culture because those are dangerous parts of the culture. So I put up my tweet, warning Southern Baptist not to go liberal over clothing. Russ Moore tweeted back, next thing you know, we'll be dancing. And uh, another dear brother tweeted back and said, we'll know Southern Baptist gone liberal for sure if uh, after the sessions they go out and see the motion picture show. <laughs> Choosing his language very carefully. We used to say, if you just don't do certain things, if you just don't go certain places, culture is basically safe. Now, time is brief and so one of the things that'd be tempting to do right here is a little analysis of why evangelicals have felt so at home in American culture. There, there are all kinds of reasons for that. Some of them, by the way, are good and some of them are, are quite concerning. For one thing, this culture never was as friendly as we thought it was to the gospel. This culture was mostly friendly to a non-threatening form of the gospel. A gospel that didn't threaten anything basic. And so you had a culture that was pervasively racist in which you have a legacy of pervasive racism that continues. And evangelicals were far too at home in that culture, not recognizing some of the toxicity, the antithesis to the gospel that is there. But it was safer in another sense in that the products of the culture were in many ways intentionally, sometimes even legislatively presented in such a way that they didn't threaten many basic points of Christian morality, certain in terms of sex, marriage, family, and all the rest. There were official rules to which Hollywood was beholden until the 1970s when the, the new rating system came into place. On the briefing just a few days ago, I talked about that rating system. It, it, it's been a sham from the beginning. Uh, Hollywood now regulating itself in that sense. But, and, and by the way, the, one of the worst aspects of that is, is that you, you've got movies that want to be, include enough bad stuff that will get a bad enough rating because people actually want to go to bad movies. It works kind of the opposite. There's Genesis 3 for you. But, but nonetheless, you could just, you, you, most American Christians, they didn't worry about sending their kids out into the schools. They didn't worry about sending their kids out into the park. They didn't worry about sending their kids uh, even uh, in front of the television set. Everything was pretty regulated. Everything was pretty controlled. And at least a civil religion that was informed by historic Christian morality 
was very much in the seat of the culture, and in, not only in a seat, but in the driver's seat. Well, we recognize we're on the other side of something. The, the panic that has come in, th there's no time to detail all of this. Let's just think about the last few days, just in the last few days. The state of Illinois has passed down regulations on foster care and adoption that would make it virtually impossible for a Christian couple to be involved in foster care or adoption because it requires absolute celebration of enthusiasm for the LGBTQ revol uh, revolution. It's just, it's all there. And, and you have to agree to raise children and to take care of children in that context or you're disqualified. The province of Ontario, right across our northern border, just in the last several days, has passed legislation, and, and that legislation has almost exactly the same effect as the regulation there in Illinois, although it goes a good deal further. Because it's not just about foster care and adoption, it's about all children, which gives at least okay. legislatively the power yeah. to the province of Ontario to judge Christian parents as to whether or not they will have custodial rights over their children if their children declare some kind of LGBTQ identity or anything in that spectrum. Uh, the state has the right now to remove those children from the homes of okay. Christian parents. All right. Thank you. Uh, we've never faced anything like this before. And not only that, that, that Ontario legislation took out several words. It, it said that until last week, the, the province and its government had to take into account the faith in which the child's, the child was being raised. The faith of the family in yeah. which the child was being raised is the exact phrase. That's gone. On. So, in other words, how are you? Good to see you. The fact that parents are Christians are raising this child by Christian conviction, that's now no longer officially even a concern of the Ontario government. And then, of course, just this week, the uh, testimony before the Senate Budget Committee, uh, Russ Vaught, uh, you know, a, a man who certainly wasn't courting controversy. And by the way, so far as I know, there never has been a significant controversy over the deputy director of the budget. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget, but you, you saw what took place, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, clearly, and I think even honestly, outraged at uh, an article that Vaught had written in which he defended his alma mater, Wheaton College's actions and the controversy you'll remember last year having to do with a professor and their confession of faith and the issue of Islam. And, 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 and what he affirmed was the exclusivity of the gospel. And uh, he did so in ways that the Vermont senator was outraged about to the extent that he interrogated him not once but twice and three times, angrily dismissed him, saying he would vote against him because what he believes is not what America is about. You look at that and say, that could just as easily have been you or your best friend. It could be me. He could have been from any evangelical church. I, happen to know something of his background, let me just tell you, it's, it's this room. This is, this is what we now face. And you notice how specifically theological it was. It wasn't Christianity in general. It wasn't the LGBTQ moral issues. It was the exclusivity of the gospel. So we're in a different place. That's why the panic is set in. And, and that's why evangelicals tend to think about the culture when they have to. And when this kind of panic comes, and by the way, the panic is not unjustified in the sense we really are facing some brand new issues and they really are as big as they look. Panic is, and the second thought, for Christians, never the best idea. And that's one of the reasons why we're gathered here. We're turning to the word and thinking together and praying together, trying to understand how the Lord would have us to think as disciples as we relate to the culture.
Now, is, is this a modern story? Well, the story I just told is very modern. Uh, even amongst evangelicals, it's interesting that most of the, most of the writing about the culture that took place in the decades from the time I was in high school until, until fairly recently was mostly uh, hopeful, rather optimistic. So you even have 40 years ago last year, Francis Schaeffer's How Shall We Then Live, uh, which, which definitely saw a decline in Western culture and art, but it also saw great, great hope perhaps for a renaissance of the permanent things, as Russell Kirk called them. But you, you'll notice there's a, there's a great shift now. And, and, and by the way, again, there's some evangelicals who are and have been doing some very, very careful thinking uh, just in terms of, uh, of our relationship, rightly and biblically understood with the culture. But we do under, understand there was a huge shift in evangelicalism and it really came about in the last half of the 20th century where evangelical biblically minded Christians started thinking about these things in a way they hadn't before because many of them had the foresight to understand that there were fundamental changes taking place and and so long before panic set in at the popular level long before we get to c-span this week um, there were evangelicals who were trying to think these things through but it's also interesting to note that long before evangelicals started thinking about these issues, Protestant liberals were thinking about these issues. And, and that goes all the way back to their sense of panic that didn't come in the, in the 21st century, but came in the 18th and 19th centuries. So this was even the birth of theological liberalism, or what we call Protestant liberalism. Friedrich Schleiermacher he, he, he wrote his, what should be his most famous work as lectures to the cultured despisers of religion. In other words, even then, you're looking over 200 years ago, the elites in Europe were already turning hostile to Christianity. Again, think of his, think of his the, translated rightly, it's the cultured despisers of, of religion. And he tried to make the argument, look, Christianity can be reinterpreted, re reformulated in such a way that it will actually add to the culture rather than being a threat to the culture. The culture, the culture elites do not have to despise Christianity, rightly understood and reformulated. You can, you can understand there's value added to Christianity. Immanuel Kant, similarly, uh, wrote about religion within the bounds of reason alone, saying we can, on the other side of the Enlightenment, make Christianity entirely reasonable and it can fit in the culture without threatening anyone. Of course, what's lost in both of those examples is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what was saved was influence, at least in their minds, for Protestantism. And, and so much so that the German model became known as culture Protestantism. That's what it became known as. And by the way, over time, it was a colossal failure. Because you can argue that not only did cultural Protestantism, or culture Protestantism, as they call it, not only did it fail to maintain credibility for Christianity, it also opened the door for endless other devils uh, to come in. You, it was even Karl Barth and the other New Orthodox who said culture Protestantism is what's behind the militarism of Germany that led to World War I. And to state the obvious, with Barth and Bonhoeffer and many others, hardly a generation later, cultural Protestantism had no ground sufficient to oppose Adolf Hitler. It was a huge failure. But of course, there were others who were trying to think these things through. By the way, one of the earliest prophets against culture Protestantism was Soren Kierkegaard, sometimes called the Melancholy Dane, a Danish philosopher. 
and, and, and by the way, he's not an evangelical, not an orthodox Protestant, but like so many, he had an amazing prophetic insight to understand what cultural Protestantism was all about. In, in one of his most important works, he pointed to the, the cultural strength of Christianity in Denmark, and he said, but if you watch what goes on, he said, the one thing missing is the one thing most important, passion. He said, it's clear you don't actually believe what you're saying. You read the scripture, you sing the hymns, you recite the creeds, but it's obvious that this is about stained glass and architecture and cultural esteem because you show no passion whatsoever for the very words that you say. And of course, we've seen that as well. There were others who were trying to think very carefully about the, the culture. And, and so even in terms of more modern times, many evangelicals have turned to a figure such as Abraham Kuyper, who was at one point the prime minister of the Netherlands, trying to think these things through. The liberals got there before we did, and the Europeans got there before we did. But very quickly, a part of what's needed is a biblical theology of culture. Let's just think about it for a moment. Since we are in this situation in which we cannot afford not to think about it, let's at least try to think about it in biblical terms. Where will we start? Well, in any biblical theology, you're going to start in the doctrine of creation. And as you look to the book of Genesis and the doctrine of creation, one of the things we come to understand is that, of course, creation itself, as Calvin said, the theater of God's glory, it's all telling a story. It's all for a purpose. It, it, it is entirely explainable only by a sovereign, gracious, omnipotent God who made all that is out of nothing for his glory. And, and in this creation, which exists for the drama of redemption, the saving work that, that God would accomplish in his son, the Christ, there is one creature who is made in God's image. And this singular creature, man made as man and woman, both in the image of God, the singular creature has a responsibility that actually does amount to culture. In Genesis 1, verse 28, the dominion mandate that is given. And of course, it begins with go forth and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. But it, it also is an assignment to take dominion, to make things, uh, to actually emulate the action of the creator in our limited nature as the creature to make things. And, and, and that becomes culture. Human beings are cultural from the very beginning, because the moment we begin to speak and use language, we're establishing culture. And again, you can do an entire biblical theology over languages. This I, I gave a message on this having to do with the, the Tower of the Babel to the marriage supper of the Lamb, just in terms of trying to follow through language. But language is the first artifact of culture. And that just reminds us that God was not looking down upon the creatures he had made and then was shocked to say, Oh my goodness, they're talking to one another. Uh, he made us for that. He gave us the ability to express language. Now, I know the naturalists out there are all going to say, look, whales squeak and they have a language and, and there's all this. Yes, but they're not writing Moby Dick. That's a, there is a distinction. There's a linguistic ability that is given to human beings that is not, is not given to any other creature. We are culture creating beings from the very beginning. And uh, in the Garden of Eden, there was culture. But then very quickly comes Genesis 3 and comes the fall. 
And, and so as every aspect of what it means to be human is deeply affected by the fall, this is where the doctrine of total depravity comes in, totus there, not meaning that, of course, and you know this, that every one of us is as bad as we could be, but rather that the totality of who we are is corrupted by sin. And that means the totality of who we are together is corrupted by sin. And this means the culture that is not an accident. God wasn't surprised. God made us as culture creating creatures. That culture is fallen in every one of its respects. In every one of its respects. And this again, there's a certain Christian naivete to say there are good parts of the culture and bad parts of the culture. There are innocent parts of the culture and there are threatening malignant parts of the culture. The reality is every part of the culture is just like every part of us. It, it demonstrates the limitations of human beings in the first place. But then it goes from that into demonstrating the, the incredible ability that God gave human creatures. And, and uh, it's stunning. It's stunning in its variety and it's stunning in its exquisite artistry. Dr. Moore and I have an ongoing conversation that will only be settled eschatologically. It has to do with the various arguments with the superiority that I will make of opera and he will make for country music. <laughs> and uh, it will be revealed only eschatologically, I assume, at that point. And uh, that's when we're going to find out if the music that really mattered most was the music about one losing one's dog <laughs> uh, or about someone who just dropped a cement block on her foot. Uh, one way or another, we're going to find out which is, uh, which is most superior. I will say that right now, opera's not having a great day. This is not a great era for the diva. Uh, but, uh, but time will tell. Time will tell. But regardless of, 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 of your preference in music or literature or any other form of art, and God gave human beings breathtaking abilities. And that is not something we should take for granted. There's a reason why we go to museums and look at art. There's a reason why we go to the theater and watch movies. There's a, there's a reason why we enjoy seeing an artist, a singer, a cellist with incredible art. Now, the fallen world simply gives glory to the art and the artist. We give glory to the art and the artist only on the way to giving ultimate glory to the creator who evidently draws pleasure in this and draws pleasure in his human creatures drawing pleasure from this. But the fall is really a lot more catastrophic than most evangelicals want to think. Because it affects everything. It includes not only the maker of the cultural product, it, it, it also corrupts the, the recipient, the consumer of the, of the product. And every part of the cultural production cycle is affected by sin. And, and so we can't assume that there's any innocence anywhere in the culture any more than we can assume say, there's any innocence in ourselves. And, and so the more complex a culture becomes, the more opportunity sin has to seize the opportunity. Uh, and it does. And, and, and one of the most important things we can recognize is that subtlety is far more dangerous than blatant depravity. Uh, subtlety is a great deal more dangerous. That's one of the reasons why we are warned that the serpent was more crafty, more subtle than all the others. Cultural analysis, uh, just even in general terms, 
long before you get to evangelical panic over the culture, uh, there have been people all along throughout human history been trying to think deeply about these things. Oddly enough, in the 20th century, some of the most important and often wise critics of the culture were Marxists. Marxists. You can say, well, I did not come to an evangelical conference in Phoenix in order to hear about Marxists and their wisdom. Please tweet thou not. <laughs> I already had last week, don't need this week. But here's the deal. The Marxists were on the underside of society trying to figure out how society works. They were trying to figure out how to get a message across. And, and many of their observations were brilliant. And one of the things they understood was that money is involved everywhere. Now, that's all Marxists see is money. But the reality is we often weren't seeing it. So the ambition to make a profit or to increase in, in, in terms of economic status, you can just see this pervasively through this. So for instance, when you go into the theater or you buy a record's about as anachronistic as get on your wagon and go home, but you know exactly what I mean. When, 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 you, when, you, when you take something from the culture, and by the way, that's not all there is to cultural production. So, you know, the stop sign is as much a part of the cultural production as anything else. But, but when you're making a choice, someone had to make a lot of choices before you can make that choice. And every one of those choices is also affected by, by sin. And, and for that matter, just sometimes by a profit motive that has no other explanation. I, I was in a store yesterday, and I know Father's Day is coming, and I just couldn't help this, but I was looking at the stuff people think children ought to give to fathers. And it's horrible. It's, uh, it's horrible what it says about kids. It's horrible what it says about fathers. It's horrible what it says about all of us. And you know most of this stuff is good. Here's the Marxist. He's going to say, somehow this capitalist tool of Father's Day which is deeply rooted in patriarchy and all kinds of other malignant things, is now being used by the capitalist system in order to entice people to buy junk they will give to their fathers who will nod and smile and then throw them away. Um, there's a whole new set of ties out. Neckties, yes, I was looking at them. And, uh, and it was a nice store. And this is a whole new set of ties. And there were very subtle little characters in them. And I, I looked and I, I all of a sudden realized, I know this guy. It's Woodstock, off of Peanuts. He's been made into a necktie. I did not buy it. I will not wear it. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like him, Sam I am. I just, I, there's no way I was gonna do that, but I just thought, you know, I don't even know, I don't even think people read comics in the newspapers anymore. And here's Woodstock on a tie on display. That's how this works. And again, that's fairly innocuous. So far as I know, Woodstock hasn't become the symbol of same-sex marriage or something. And so there's no, no, no particularly overt moral message there. It's just, it's just a little yellow bird understood only by a, an imaginary dog. And here we are talking about it because that's how powerful culture is. Somehow it ends up on a necktie. Well, all that to say, our time here is not to do complicated cultural analysis. But we do understand that in this sense, culture represents an enormous challenge to us that, that we better think about very, very carefully. 
And so we've got to move in our biblical theology from creation in the fall to redemption. Redemption. What is being redeemed? And, and I've been trying to think as carefully about this for many, many years. And I, I've, of course, you want to think more carefully as you grow older and think longer about these things. But one of the things that strikes me is that the New Testament in particular has shockingly little about the culture. Shockingly little about economics, surprisingly little about politics. It's not to say they're not important. I, I hope you hear me say this. You know how important I believe these things to be. But it's still shocking. And the longer I look, the more shocking it becomes how little there actually is in the New Testament uh, concerning these matters that actually receive a great deal of attention in the Old Testament. Christ came to save sinners. The redemption that is revealed in Scripture will be a redemption of the culture. But this is where we have to hold together the doctrine of redemption and our eschatology very, very closely. Because there is no biblical promise of the redemption of the culture in this age. Instead, in the New Testament, we are pointed to a new heaven and a new earth, even a new Jerusalem descending from heaven. There will be a perfected culture. There will be a redeemed culture, which is better than being perfected. It's perfected because it's been redeemed. And we, as those who are in Christ, will reign with Christ in that culture. And, and by the way, that simply should destroy all of the facile and unbiblical notions of heaven. You know, all the stupid ideas of people sitting on clouds playing harps. Instead, we'll be doing everything that is assigned to us in terms of the culture. Only in ways that will be totally pleasing to Christ. Will uniformly point to the glory of God. And will last and will demonstrate God's purpose in making us as he made us in his image from the very beginning. Now, that's not to say we don't have a cultural responsibility in this age. We clearly do. Christ himself would speak of this when he spoke of his disciples being salt and light. We also find this in some of the epistles in the New Testament. Mark mentioned Peter last night, in particular 2 Peter. There's some very clear instructions to us about how we are to live. There's some practical applications. And, of course, Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount also, clearly understanding that Christians are going to face the challenge of how to be faithfully Christian, represent him. And, uh, and the higher law uh, to which he calls us, even before the watching world. The book of Acts, as much as the book of Exodus, demonstrates something of what it means for God's people to have to negotiate their way in uh, a very difficult and changing cultural terrain. In the case of the book of Acts, in the political and theological and social world, of the first century dominated by Rome. But still, there's just not as much there as we might just assume would be there. What is clear is that the primary mission given to the church is a gospel mission. And that the primary culture of the church's concern is the church. And those who are the church. 
I think I would put it this way. The New Testament presents to us a conversionist mission that will have cultural effects, not a cultural mission that will have conversionist effects. The New Testament gives us a conversionist mission that will have cultural effects, not a cultural mission that will have conversionist effects. And I think we have to be very, very careful to keep that in terms of structure and priority. And where you find a thriving gospel people, there will be impact on the culture. But here I've got to say something that I want to be heard if nothing else is heard. When we talk this way, our evangelical inclination is to think about art, music, cinema, literature, you go down the list. The most important biblical culture grounded in the doctrine of creation is marriage and the family. The most important engine of cultural manufacture is the family. And then beyond that, we also have the redefinition of the family in terms of its fitting within the biblical worldview in the new family, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church, which means as the family of faith, there is no one who's without a family. And as the family of faith understands God's gift of the family and of marriage and honors these in such a way that where you find Christ's people, you should find marriages that thrive where other marriages do not. Where faithfulness is the hallmark where it otherwise is not. Where mutual love, reciprocity, and devotion, first to Christ, then to each other, and to the children, demonstrates God's plan laid out in Scripture. So where you find Christ's people, where you find the church, then you will find Christians who are creating a culture in the church and are, are aiding and assisting the rightful ordering of the culture in marriage and in the family in every aspect of the church's life and is making an effect on the culture at large. And, and for some, that will be those who are given a particular gift and a particular opportunity where there's a stewardship of a gift. There are people who should go to the Juilliard School of Music and there are people who should not. Most of those who should not actually cannot. They have admission standards. Uh, but there are some who are given those, that, those kinds of gifts. They should use them insofar as they're able to do so faithfully in their discipleship of Christ. But we need to honor not just the one who goes out from us and, uh, and is well known for contributing to the culture and the arts and in other ways, including politics, economics. We, we, we should be producing those who at least have the aptitude and the commitment to win the Nobel Prize in various fields. And we should be active in those fields in such time that we are shut out. But we also need to honor the fact that the mother who has to leave the, the, the service to go attend to a child is actually demonstrating what makes the culture perhaps more than anything else. And the world wouldn't see it that way, but we do. All right. So why Deuteronomy chapter 6? Very quickly, I want to suggest to you that I read to you Deuteronomy chapter 6 because I think there is a central biblical preoccupation about the culture that we often miss. 
And uh, I can't say that I've missed this. I've known this. Many of you, when I say it, you'll know it, and you'll know that you knew it. But we have to know it in a whole new way in this moment if we're going to be faithful. And, and it comes down to this. One of the preoccupations of the Old Testament, and we see it in this chapter, is how God's people can go and live in Canaan without becoming Canaanites. That turns out to be a massive biblical preoccupation. And so even in the book of Deuteronomy, it's repeated over and over and over and over again. I'm preaching word by word right now through Exodus. It's amazing how often it already appears in Exodus. And it was already pictured in, in Genesis. Just think of the cities on the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. How does one go and take possession of Canaan without becoming Canaanites? And just for instance, right now I've been preaching through Exodus 21, 22, and, and 23. And, and a lot of people, I think Christians, are think, hey, that's really boring stuff. No, it's not. Oh, my heavens, No. I mean, for instance, you've got God, and, and it is repetitive. What does that tell us? It tells us that God's people have always needed repetition. And uh, that's humbling. It has to be repeated over and over and over again. Not just in every generation, but sometimes in every chapter. But for instance, when, when, when Israel is being told how they're going to enter into Canaan, God tells them that they can't even take over a Canaanite idolatrous worship place and transform it into the worship of Yahweh. You can't do it. And why? It's because that place is now too associated with an idol. You, you, you can't even redeem it. Just let it go. Destroy it. Leave not one stone upon another. And then, and then God says, when you do build an altar to me, do not cut stones. You just pile up stones. Now, what, why is that there? It's because the moment you begin to cut stones, it becomes your altar. Now, this, this is your artistry. This is your ability. And God said, no, just pile up the rocks and perform the sacrifice. And then, and then later, of course, God will order the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and, and the temple. And he'll be very specific about the artistry that is to be demonstrated there. But that is going to be where he says, when he says, exactly as he says, it's not going to be quasi-Canaanite religion dressed up for Jehovah. This preoccupation about how to live in Canaan without becoming Canaanites, I think it should be the preoccupation of every evangelical church. And perhaps one good thing that could come out of this current evangelical panic is the understanding that there really is something to panic about, but panic is never the right answer. It's not that upon reflection the problem looks less significant, it looks more significant. But we are not left to this to fend for ourselves. Israel wasn't thrust into Canaan and abandoned. The Lord who saved His church and is even now calling out sinners to salvation is the Lord who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And furthermore, he's the, the Lord who said to his disciples, it is better for you that I now go. I'm, I'm sending a helper. Now, do we trust that the Lord actually meant what he said? Does, did, he knew what he was, did he know what he was talking about? Is it actually better that he be not with us now physically in order that the Holy Spirit, Spirit be given to us, be given to the church? For our good, it is better? I don't test your biblical theology. 
We've got to learn how to raise kids who aren't Canaanites. That's going to be tough. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to suggest at least three things you've got to keep in mind there in order to raise children who do not turn out to be pagans. The first is doctrine. Just notice how much truth. I, I don't have time to do a, an exposition of Deuteronomy 6. You heard it, but notice how much truth is in there, how often God's word is, is, is honored as God's word. You shall not fail to teach your son what? Teach your children the truth. And, and, and then you'll notice it's narrative in, in, in parts. The, the Lord brought us out of bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. He brought us out then in order that he might bring us in. This is all about God's act. It's about God's power. It's about God's purpose. It's about God's glory. And it's about us. Because God loved us and appointed us to this task. The second word is diligence. That's another thing that just jumps out at us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's over and over and over again. You've got to do this. You've got to teach when your children are in the house and when they're out of the house. And you're going out and then you're coming in. And you're standing up and then you're lying down. In other words, you never miss an opportunity. Now, parents, that's exactly what children need. You can't miss an opportunity. And, and so don't wait for a teachable moment. Right now is a teachable moment. And you're teaching all the time. Just make sure that diligently you're teaching. And, and, and you're teaching the Word of God. And, and, and so you're to have this Word in your heart. It's supposed to be on your lips. Even the, the, the phylacteries and the frontlets that, uh, that a Jewish man would wear. You had the Scripture between the eyes so that it would never be far from them. The same reason it was in the doorpost of the house. Diligence. And by the way, parents, remember this is what your children need. Because this is what you need. It's one of the reasons why I think the Lord had parents diligently teach their children. It's because in teaching their children, they'd have to hear themselves say these words. We are not in a situation different than our own children in this. Where you find God's people, you will find doctrine and you'll find diligence and you'll find discipline. There's a moral application. Israel could not live as the peoples around them. And they're told here, you shall not tempt the Lord as you did at Massah. You shall live according to these laws. You shall live according to this way. Even when no one around you lives this way, you live this way. Because you're my people. I also turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 in order that I might turn over to Matthew chapter 22. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In Matthew chapter 22, the Lord Jesus Christ picks this up. And when asked about the greatest commandment, and in Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, but skip on down for time, to verse 37, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. It all hangs on these two. So, let's admit we're in a moment of cultural panic. It's real. Let's admit panic is not the right response. Let's move from panic to serious thinking about what it would mean to be a faithful disciple in the midst of the culture. Let's strip ourselves of any illusions that somehow God meant for our discipleship to be apart from any culture. Let's be stripped of all kinds of illusions 
that uh, might be utopian or overly pessimistic. There, there's, there's simply no way to withdraw from the culture. You can, you can withdraw from certain cultural products. You can withdraw from certain, from certain arguments. You can withdraw from even certain arenas of cultural engagement. You can't withdraw from the culture. It's actually impossible. The culture will chase you down. And besides that, God made us as cultural beings. Some culture is going to follow us and be present amongst us wherever we go. But this puts us back into a position in which we also have to recognize the culture can't save us. Nor ultimately can we save the culture. Only Christ saves. And His main concern is creating a new people. And a, a people who will have effects in the culture. He gives to His people, His blood-bought people, a conversionist mission that will have cultural effects. We've got to be very careful not to turn that into a cultural mission they might have conversionist effects. And we're going to need the church because none of us is able to do this alone. We, we need the local church, the congregation, because we've got to negotiate all of this together. And we're not going to be able to do it alone. One of the most dangerous creatures you can imagine on earth is a Christian apart from a thriving congregation. There is no biblical reason to imagine that that can end well in terms of faithfulness. So... Let's move from panic to something better. Uh, let's not ignore the obvious, but let's seize it as an opportunity, we pray, for gospel-minded Christians to be found more and not less faithful. And let's hold to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that ultimately, this is about our confidence in Christ to see His people through. And I believe that confidence is enough for us to hang on to when nothing else seems sure. Let's pray.